It's Wednesday, November 16th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There are several ways to avoid prosecution for a prosecutable offense. The big way is don't break the law, but that never works. I'm talking about you did it. What can you do not to face charges? I'm thinking, for instance, of things like one, hire good lawyers to work out an agreement proactively. Two, could claim you were operating within the bounds of a differing legal authority. Let's say three, shield your assets and opaque vehicles for cajole, bribe, threaten would-be accusers. Five, this is the big one, run for president. Donald J. Trump is an innovator on this last point. No one had thought of or really had reason to think of the presidential campaign as prosecutorial bug repellent before Trump. He hopes that under the rules, but more specifically the norms of the Justice Department, that last night's announcement might serve as, if not a shield, a disincentive for Merrick Garland to bring charges. It might not work. And the it means the indemnification attempt. Also, the re-election attempt very much might not work. But it might. I'll get into that more in the spiel. And we got into that on Not Even Mad, where you'll hear Virginia Heffernan say, If he were Carter after one term, we would say, what a disaster. I hope he, as a Democrat, I loved him, but I would never have wanted him to run again. And then Jamie Kerchick goes, can't think of a better time for the Republicans to make a break with this guy. Uh, he's a loser. Jamie's argument about Trump's weakness is echoed in Kevin Williamson's essay in the New York Times, one of, I think, 12 Trump-based editorials the paper has run over the last two days. Remember, Republicans lost 247 House, Senate, and governor seats with a few pending. That was a week ago. Trump didn't lose any of them, but he is almost the sole focus of this editorial page. I get it. Now, you should know that Williamson's essay is titled, Why Trump Could Win Again. And it makes good points beyond the we were once wrong before. That means all knowledge or cognition is suspect. It's not that type of reasoning. William points out that many of the critiques of Trump are critiques of losing political movements. But Trump is something beyond that. Also, not quite that. He's a cult of personality. Which brings me to a point I've been eager to raise. Those who dismiss Trump right now in this moment do seem to be having it both ways. On the one hand, there's all this data, actual good data, about what Jamie was saying, that he is a loser, that candidates he backed lost heavily, that he lost personally, that his track record is poor. But also, many of the same people arguing that will be the first to say this guy's inspired a cult of personality. Well, the second condition is impervious to the first. If it's a cult of personality, it won't respond to data. It won't respond rationally to his poor showing. And if 2022, an election that Trump wasn't technically an actual part of, if that dismantles the cult, well, it wasn't much of a cult to begin with. My opinion is that, sure, some of the most fervid Trump supporters are absolutely cult-like in their devotion, but for most Republican voters or would-be Republican voters, he is a Republican. They like that. He does have an agenda they support. He does say a lot of things that strike them as true. He is entertaining but they haven't lost all of their senses. If they have lost all of their senses, then predicting his demise based mostly on, rationally speaking, what could be judged poor performances, that would be an impossible thing to do. Can't have it both ways. When it comes to Trump, I hope he's recognized very soon as a former cult leader and that all the former members come to view the old MAGA hats in their closet 
as if they had their leader's initials branded on their bikini lines. Yes, it is shameful, but excused by the explanation. I was like a totally different person then. On the show today, a breakdown of the Trump speech and the coverage of the speech, enough to make one usually staid news organization spitting mad. But first, in March of 2018, then-President Donald Trump appointed hotel magnate Gordon Sondland to be ambassador to the EU. In that role, he became involved in Trump's phone call with Ukraine's new leader, Vladimir Zelensky. And Sondland has a new book out, The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World, that talks about this and a lot more. I have a lot of questions for Mr. Sondland, who is up next. Gordon Sondland was the United States ambassador to the EU from 2018 through 2020. He also testified at the impeachment inquiry against Donald Trump. He was the, I believe this is true, the only political appointee to publicly testify. And he is out with a book about his time testifying and serving. Gordon Sondland, welcome to The Gist. Thank you, Michael. Can I uh, correct something you said at the opening? I did not testify against Donald Trump, nor did I testify for Donald Trump. Uh, I was subpoenaed. I was asked to tell the truth. I told the truth. And some of what I said, frankly, may have helped the president. Some may have hurt the president. And some was probably completely innocuous. But I was not, uh, I did not appear as a witness against or for President Trump. And I want to make that really clear. That's true. That's fair. That's not how the impeachment inquiry worked. There were no prosecution witnesses and defense witnesses per se. But um, it is true. And we'll get into this. But I wanted to ask other things. So let's start off with it. The major headline, and I think if I was writing the headlines, I would have emphasized this too, is that you confirmed uh, the quid pro quo, if you will. In fact, one of the first lines of your book is, I'm the quid pro quo guy. So do you f- agree that that is a fair framing of what you said? Everyone was in the loop. Sondland confirms quid pro quo. That's just a sample headline that I took from PBS. Well, let's talk about a quid pro quo. I had a quid pro quo this morning uh, during breakfast. Uh, they mm-hmm. gave me food. I gave them my uh, American Express card. That was the quid pro quo. In the case mm-hmm. of the impeachment, the initial ask from Trump through Rudy Giuliani was, I want pre-setup investigations that had already been ongoing under the administration before Zelensky to continue And if you announce that you'll continue those investigations, that's one of the things you ran on, President Zelensky, uh, then I will invite you to the Oval Office. That was it. Do what you said you were going to do in your campaign, say it publicly, and I'll invite you to, to a meeting. That was all. Right. And you even say in your book that there's nothing inherently wrong with a quid pro quo. I don't think anyone thinks there is three one-syllable Latin words, which just means this for that. The question is, what is the this and what is the that? So you got your coffee. That's a quid pro quo. If a mafia don orders a hit and offers to pay, that could be a quid pro quo. I think the important thing in this impeachment inquiry was that Trump was denying it and you confirmed it. And then 
it set into action more, as you just said, more nefarious aspects of what Trump wanted for aid that Congress had pledged or uh, voted to give to Ukraine. So did I say anything wrong there? No. And just to frame this conversation, uh, January 6th for me was a red line. So when we talk about my interaction with President Trump, I was on the team until January 6th, at which point he lost me. Fair, except you literally weren't on the team because he fired you uh, after the impeachment inquiry was settled and he was uh, he was acquitted. You've built successful, very successful businesses, in fact, in the uh, similar industries to Donald Trump, hospitality, hotels. Would you have fired you? Were you in his position? Yes, I would have. And the reason I would have was simply because if the political goal was to move on from that issue. Remember, the election denial thing hadn't occurred yet. So when, that, when, when he was acquitted by the Senate, uh, in, in his mind, he had a clean slate to continue to move forward and govern as president for his remaining term and hopefully be reelected. So if I were sitting in his shoes, I would say, I don't want anyone connected with that, rightly or wrongly, to continue to serve on my team because all it's going to do is continue to bring up that that shameful issue over and over again. So intellectually, I understood it, but obviously I didn't like it. I didn't agree with it. And I would have appreciated more loyalty, clearly. Gotcha. And would you have in his position, so let's go back a couple of branches on the decision tree, uh, and I did hear everything you said about the quid pro quo that you were privy to and what it became. But would you have engaged in those pressure tactics that he did to get the public announcement of an investigation that, you know, I, th- I think reasonably the motivation was Trump's domestic political advancement? So would you have done that? I wouldn't have. I I didn't think that the conversation was appropriate, but I also didn't think that it rose to an impeachment uh, level. Uh, I thought that could have been handled very, very differently. Uh, Clearly, Zelensky, as I mentioned before, had campaigned on that very issue. He wanted Mm -hmm. to restart all of the investigations that some oligarchs had persuaded President Poroshenko, his predecessor, to shut down. He wanted to restart those. So I probably would have had him into the White House for a meeting. I would have gotten to know him. And I'm sure those issues would have come up in a later conversation where the entire pressure uh, portion of this would not have been necessary. He probably would have said, yes, I campaigned on that. I'm going to restart the investigations wherever they lead, whether they lead to Hunter Biden or Joe Biden or wherever they lead, I'm going to do it. Right. Well, if he had, if uh, Trump had done that, it would have been not just a way around uh, an impeachment inquiry or criticism. I think it would have been legitimate. It just, the impeachment was premised on- Just the same as Joe Biden the other day asked the Saudis to please keep pumping oil uh, until after the midterms because it would make the numbers look better for the election. It's very similar. It's similar unless Joe Biden, I don't want to get- too much into uh, the comparison here. It's similar unless Joe Biden was really asking the Saudis only to pledge to pump the oil and not actually pump the oil, which would have been uh, a something which would have been a policy that 
you could conceivably argue would help the American people or even uh, in the case of Ukraine would help the Ukrainian people. I think, as you know, the entire criticism was that this was all conditioned, whatever the Ukrainian policy was, was conditioned on a public announcement Uh, the substance of which didn't really matter. It was the announcement that Trump was after because that would help his domestic reelection. Well, no, it it actually, that's not true. Uh, What Trump, Trump was very, very wary of Ukrainians per se. Uh, The company, the company, the country had huge corruption issues. In fact, when the old foreign minister of Ukraine came to see me very early on in, in my ambassadorship who worked for Poroshenko, he said, we have a corruption problem in Ukraine and we can't get, you know, Western investors to come in and invest. What should I do to help that? So those discussions were ongoing over and over. I think Trump just wanted Zelensky to put a marker down so that he would be essentially, be, you know, beholden to the public by saying, I'm going to do this. And that, Wait, you honestly believe you honestly believe that that was Trump's main motivation and not to get something embarrassing against Joe Biden? No, no. I think his motivation was to get Zelensky to commit publicly to restarting the investigations. I honestly believe that he thought that Trump thought once those investigations were restarted, just the course of those investigations would naturally lead to a lot of places, including perhaps the Burisma issue, because the investigations, in, uh, you know, encompassed far more than just Burisma. Uh, yeah, yeah. And this is, by the way, and I've had Dershowitz on the show and I've, uh, you know, extensively talked about all the issues of impeachment. If there is if there is a corrupt motivation and an uncorrupt, incorrupt motivation, the thinking among some goes, certainly Trump's defenders, is that that's legitimate. That's fine. And they even, or any president's motivations, and they will always cite, you know, um, presidential scholars will always cite, well, this often happens. People commit well, to look, a foreign a, policy I'm, goal because it's a, good I'm policy a, and it would help them. I'm not a presidential them. scholar and I am not a defender of Trump, nor am I a prosecutor of Trump. What I'm trying to do is very thoughtfully recount what actually happened versus what was spun in the media. Mm -hmm. Remember, when we returned, when the delegation, which was myself, Ambassador Volcker, Secretary Perry, returned from Kiev and met with Trump shortly thereafter, we were very excited when we walked in the Oval Office. We liked Zelensky. We thought the two of them would hit it off. And we thought once he and Trump met, good things would happen for Ukraine. We were very, very dismayed when he said, well, I'm not interested in any of that. Go deal with Rudy if you want to do Ukraine stuff. Uh, You know, he was on something else. He was in a bad mood. I recount this in detail in the envoy. And so he pushed this all off onto Giuliani. So these requests, and this is very important, Michael, these requests did not come from Trump to me or to the others. They came from Giuliani. We don't know for a fact if those came from Giuliani himself or if they came from Trump through Giuliani. And I never Mm -hmm. heard, I never was able to get to the bottom of that. So I could not under oath say Trump said or did this, that, whatever, because once he dismissed this whole notion of dealing with Ukraine and sort of said, you know, get the fuck out of here, go talk to Rudy, uh, 
we were dealing with Rudy and I wasn't even the one dealing with Rudy. Primarily it was Volker. So all of these instructions and asks came from Rudy. What's your intuition as to the question as of was Rudy Giuliani driving U.S. policy or was he doing it uh, on the instructions of Donald Trump? Uh, you know, as I learn more and more about Rudy, it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of this came from Rudy. Yeah. So what's your assessment of a leader that allows that to happen? Well, clearly that was not a preferred course. I was very disappointed in Trump for doing that. We all looked at each other as we walked out of the White House and said, what the hell is going on here? What does Rudy have to do with Ukraine? And of course, several months later, we learned what Rudy did have to do with Ukraine. Right, right. Donald Trump just announced for president yesterday. I have two questions about that. One is, what's your overall reaction? Well, in the envoy, I say the January 6th issues were unforgivable in in my view. Once January 6th occurred, uh, I decided uh, I can't I can't support someone who presides over one of the key pillars of democracy and uh, presides in the destruction of that pillar, which is the peaceful transfer of power. Mm-hmm. And so I want to um, ask you about a specific statement that Trump made. He said that, well, there's a be a paraphrase that if he were president, Russia would not have invaded Ukraine. It's a hypothetical. We have no way of quote unquote knowing, but what do you think about that statement? Well, let me put that statement in context. Uh, Trump had a very sort of contrarian, counterintuitive approach to thugs, whether that thug was Kim Jong-un, whether that thug was the leadership of Iran, Putin, Xi, you name it. And his contrarian approach, which trust me, was controversial, Mm -hmm. was, I am going to be so nice to them in public, they are not going to understand what I'm even saying. I'm going to praise them. I'm going to tell them how great they are, how everyone respects them. And then in private, I'm going to threaten them within an inch of their life and beat the shit out of them. And that's essentially Uh what he did. Let me give you an example. When he spoke with the leader of the Taliban, and I, this is a firsthand, you know, uh, this is firsthand information, not second or third. He had praised the Taliban publicly to a certain degree, and people were very off put by it. When he spoke to the leader of the Taliban and announced that we were going to be doing a withdrawal from Afghanistan, he said, look, we're going to do it. We're going to do it on our timetable, and we're going to keep certain assets in Afghanistan indefinitely take it or leave it. But that's what we're going to do. And by the way, while we're doing this, we may pause, we may go backwards, we may do it fast. That's totally up to us. However, if at any point in the process, you harm one US person or our allies, we are going to hit you like you've never been hit before. And the Taliban leader, according to the person who was on the phone on this call, said, I understand your excellency. That's how he addressed Trump, your excellency. Mm -hmm. Trump said, no, you don't understand. You've been hit a lot over the last 20, 25 years. You have never been hit like I'm going to hit you. You won't exist any longer if you harm anyone. And I'm not kidding. Not dissimilar to what Biden said the other day about about Putin when he said, we're going to defend every inch of, of, uh, you know, 
of NATO territory. But for whatever reason, whether it's a personality difference, whether it's Trump's history, who knows what goes into these things? There was no question in my source's mind that this Taliban guy believed Trump and that he was scared of Trump. And the results were nothing happened to anyone. There was an accident or two. I think some people died, but it wasn't it wasn't uh, a purposeful attack by the Taliban. Yeah. So Trump and Trump and Trump has had the same conversations, similar conversations with Kim Jong-un, with Putin and others. So to answer your original question, I think it would have been far less likely that Putin would have invaded Ukraine had Trump been president. Uh, so you think those tactics would have worked equally well with Putin as with the Taliban? I, th- or might I think so, because I think at the very first sign of any movement by Putin, I think we would have moved significant materiel inside of Ukraine immediately. We would have gone early and gone harder. And I think it might have prevented. I think Putin is always a calculus guy. Mm -hmm. When can I get away with this? It wasn't a question of if he was going to do it. It was always a question of when he was going to do it. And the when was not under a Trump presidency. The when was definitely under a Biden presidency, given what happened in Afghanistan, given President Biden's statements publicly that, well, maybe a small incursion will deal with differently than a large incursion. Those are all signals that Biden sent, and they were the wrong signals. Well, it was under a Biden presidency, and this goes back to your assessment of his negotiation with the Taliban, which they stuck to because he set a a date of, Trump did set a date of May 1st, 2021, which would be during the next administration and not his administration if he didn't win, which he didn't. That deal he signed with the Taliban was very heavily conditions-based. And most deals that he signed were conditions-based. So in other words, he could commit to a time frame, he could commit to an end date, but the minute we, the United States, in our sole discretion, decided the conditions aren't right, we could pause, we could go backwards, we could do whatever we wanted. And they understood that. So not really commit. Um, Yes, but I would just not want someone hearing that description to come away thinking, oh, Trump was this masterful negotiator and all of the disaster is on Biden because it was this date that Biden pushed back by a month or so. But this was the date set by Trump where the troops were drawn from 13,000 to 2,500 by the date that definitely was the preconditions for what we saw with the ultimate failure of the withdrawal. I think the preconditions, Michael, to be honest, were the, the fact that for political expediency, not based on what was actually going on in situ for political expediency biden just wanted to get the hell out of there so that he could tick the box and i think that cost a lot of lives mm-hmm. and your assessment from your vantage point and your position of expertise and i i'm hearing what you said about his i'm disappointed date, i wish which, he hadn't done it yeah i wish he had said look i want to get out of there as badly as anyone I don't you want... wish Trump hadn't set that date, is what you're saying. No, I wish Biden hadn't been so focused on trying to sort of hit the ground running 
reverse all of Trump's policies immediately, get out of Afghanistan, do this, do that. It reminds me a little bit of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. Every single thing uh-huh. Elon Musk is doing or has done in the last two weeks could have been done, but you have to do it in a week. Can't you kind of move yeah. a little bit more thoughtfully? <laughs> well, that was a disaster of Musk's own making, right. for sure. And I think this was but a disaster my question of Biden's is the- own making. To be honest. Well, my question is, the negotiation with the Taliban went very well, and the setting of the withdrawal date had no part to play and was a tactic that you thought was wise and that you supported? First of all, nothing goes well with the Taliban. They're full of shit, okay? <laughs> they're, li- they're, they're liars, they're thugs, they're murderers, okay? Let's just start, whether you're Biden or Trump, that's what you're dealing with. Yeah. And they only understand power and they only understand leverage. That's all they understand. Mm-hmm. There is no goodwill. There is no, um, you know, kumbaya with the Taliban, nor is there with the North Koreans. And frankly, nor is there with Putin. Oh, great. That was the first of all. But the second of all, where I asked you that you think that that was proper and the best way to negotiate that. You do? I mean, yeah, we're talking about negotiating with tough negotiating partners. Look, I'm talking about a guy in Trump who every much as Biden wanted to make some political hay, Trump wanted to do the same thing. Neither of these Mm -hmm. guys has a halo when it comes to that. Frankly, every politician has a certain, you know, level of motivation that's what is this good for me? Never mind what's good for the country. The one thing I can say about Trump, given his background as a New York real estate developer, which some would argue is tougher than being in Afghanistan, I'm only saying that jokingly, is that he is the ultimate person in terms of being able to be flexible and pivot instantly. It doesn't matter what you agreed to. It doesn't matter what someone agreed to. If conditions change, you take that into account and you change your strategy overnight. And I think what happens is the the Biden crowd are very, very, they, they have sort of this moral, we've agreed to do this, we're the United States, we have to follow through, never mind what they're doing to us. Mm-hmm. And I think the ability to pivot is not in their DNA. It's just not. And Gordon Sondland will be back tomorrow to talk not so much about impeachment, but about just working in the Trump administration. If he thinks that this is the best way to go about appointing ambassadors, why money might actually have something to do with success in foreign policy. And if Trump's negotiating tactics works better for enemies than for allies, author of The Envoy, Gordon Sondland, back tomorrow. And now the spiel. There's a lot you can say about Donald J. Trump. Insurrectionist, liar, president, showman, con man, would-be strongman. He's a different breed of cat. And he's trying to do something only one other person has ever done, win the American presidency after serving in that role and losing re-election. And like President Grover Cleveland, Trump understands branding. Proof? If Grover Cleveland had gone by his real first name, he'd be known as Stephen Cleveland, thereby opening himself up to sing-song mockery. I doubt America would have elected a man named Stephen Cleveland once, let alone an interrupted twice. And there were other presidents in the ether at Mar-a-Lago last night. 
names evoked like Ronald Reagan in regard to tax cuts, but also invoked as in a nod to Reagan's frequent citation of the city on the hill. Trump instead chose imagery that was more earthbound. The blood-soaked streets of our once great cities are cesspools of violent crimes. And in case we missed that due to too much subtlety. The cities are rotting and they, they are indeed cesspools of blood. President Hoover supposedly called for a chicken in every pot. President Trump also engaged in some poultry rhetoric. And good luck getting a turkey for Thanksgiving. Number one, you won't get it. And if you do, you're going to pay three to four times more than you paid last year. Trump compared himself to other presidents generally, as with this inscrutable boast. I've gone decades, decades without a war. The first president to do it for that long a period. He's gone decades without a war. He has. So what, as a real estate developer in New York, he never authorized a pincher movement against the Tishman Corporation? No pre-dawn raids on the Helmsley building? I do not get what he means. He seems to be saying that he got us out of a war in Afghanistan, but of course he didn't. Otherwise, one of his big talking points that his successor bungled the withdrawal of Afghanistan would make no sense. Oh my God, look at me. Falling into the post-Trump trap of demanding sense. But it is on the issue of criticizing his successor that Trump was most animated. Joe Biden was the president that Trump focused on most, though he sought to brand the Biden presidency as not an actual administration. And one of the beautiful things of the pause, if there is such a thing as a beautiful thing, but one of the, the important factors of the pause is that we see how bad they've done. The Marvel Cinematic Universe had the blip. The Vatican has a papal interregnum. Trump seeks to have us regard these last two and next two years as the pause. The pause. Pause in COVID deaths? No, that's not what he meant. He didn't even mention that or consider it in describing the situation that he left for Joe Biden. All of the incoming administration and all they had to do was just sit back and watch. That was all they had to do. But there were 4,409 COVID deaths the day Joe Biden was sworn in, the day Donald Trump slunk away without attending the ceremony. The United States has not reached that high a total since. I don't know why that fact, which seems almost too concocted or too horribly perfect in a way, I don't know why that isn't more well known. There were over 20,000 COVID deaths per week in the first three weeks of the Biden administration, and it hasn't reached those heights, I should say, those depths since. None of that was mentioned or contemplated in the Trump announcement. In fact, I thought the Trump announcement wouldn't be mentioned or contemplated all that much at all. But here I am talking about it in two segments, also on the current Not Even Mad. And look at the New York Times. The New York Times, on their opinion page, has only Trump articles. Brett Stevens, Trump is finally finished. New York Times editorial board, America deserves better than Donald Trump. Trump's announcement is a sign of weakness by Ross Douthat. Guest essay, The Chaos Inside Donald Trump's Mind by Michael Wolff. And then there's one about the chaos in your mind caused by Donald Trump, which is just one of the genre about thinking, about thinking about Donald Trump. Guest essay, how is it possible that we are still talking about this man? Also, hey, how is it possible that these stones will just bounce off this glass house? Hmm. I didn't think 
We'd be doing wall-to-wall coverage, but I can't not. Hey, it's good for democracy to keep chronicling his lies. That works, right? We just have to find the right graphic or framing or taunt. I mean, we went with Pinocchios and pants on fire. Maybe we could stop them if we get a graphic about a chain being yanked, the amount of tensile tautness within the chain. That could do it. Or, oh, a cartoonishly large mound of dung that might go up as he lies more. That might temper his prevarications. I know it would to any decent man. I'm not exaggerating when I say there is a lot in how we, you, I, the media, how we give our attention to Trump that borders on addiction. Come on. We can't look away. Yeah, I know. I know. We can't look away. We owe it to ourselves and our democracy not to look away, lest these outrages be unaddressed. Yeah. And I only drink out of concern for the fine local distillers who have families to feed. So after, on my other show, Not Even Mad, talking about how this Trump run might be different because the Murdochs have soured on the man, and after noting that the CNNs of the world won't find it fun or overly remunerative to play all his outrageous rallies, I fall back to a position of saying, I don't know. It's not as if the addict has control over the addiction. Take this NPR tweet about the Trump announcement, breaking... Donald Trump, who tried to overthrow the results of the 2020 presidential election and inspired a deadly riot at the Capitol in a desperate attempt to keep himself in power, has filed to run for president again in 2024. It got 150,000 likes, 50,000 retweets. A typical NPR story will get a few hundred likes, less than 100 retweets. It might be the most popular tweet NPR has ever tweeted. There's nothing factually wrong per se in that framing, though I don't know that overthrow is exactly the verb to use in relation to the results of an election, overthrow the results, but it's certainly a charged verb, as are the phrases inspired a deadly riot, deadly for a rioter, that's true. Inspired seems fair, it's definitely not legally actionable, I cite Brandenburg. Is the attempt to stay in power desperate? Connotes a long shot. I don't know that this is a long shot, scarily enough. Think about the actual headline, not the social media headline, the actual headline on the NPR story that that tweet linked to. Donald Trump, who tried to overturn Biden's legitimate election, launches 2024 bid. That is more in keeping with NPR's house style. But social media is optimized for outrage. Trump is outrageous, even inspiring NPR to shed some self-restraint. Well, good. Cheer on all the people who mostly cheer on the angriest reactions to all things Trump. Defund NPR counters another trending topic on Twitter. Should NPR stand up to the forces of oppression in a show of solidarity, that will inspire more passions. If they say, yeah, you know, we probably actually should have said overturn election results, not overthrow them. Overthrow is a little bit much. Well, that will be seen as cowardly surrender which is a sign, it's all a sign, of the high conflict that Amanda Ripley writes about and that she was speaking about on the show a few days ago. The high conflict that Trump rode and fomented for four years. I worry the high conflict, should it descend upon us in reaction to or conjured by this whirlwind of a man, it will serve as the perfect background condition for everything Trump wants. Desperately, or from my vantage point, dangerously and plausibly so. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO 
of Peachfish Productions. Her Thanksgiving plans? Good luck getting a turkey for Thanksgiving. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dupro. Turkey. And thanks for listening.